from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. So thanks again for coming out and watching. Does anyone have any questions or comments? It seems to me that um, it would help a lot to change people's minds um, if there were a study done um, on uh, adult males who had circumcision done as adults and um, also to learn uh, if there's a difference in um, uh, sexual performance or uh, issues um, if there's a difference between um, men who are circumcised versus non-circumcised men. Sure. Um, and there is data that exists on these questions. The problem is that the data is the, the data's conflicting. Um, I, I, I should say there are, two pr- there, there are a number of problems here. Um, number one, uh, this is not a subject that there's a large amount of financial incentive to investigate, right? You have a, a practice that's this ubiquitous. Um, the incentive for demonstrating uh, or investigating even whether or not it's harmful is much less than the incentive for keeping it going. So that's one problem, I think. Another problem is... Um, there are genuine methodological difficulties in settling that question. So um, what does sexual pleasure mean? How does it relate to whether a person is circumcised or uncircumcised? Sexual pleasure is a very complex subject um, that has many contributing factors. Yeah, but very difficult to tease out. So let's say, for example, I wanted to look, let's say I wanted to look at one thing specifically, erectile dysfunction among men who are circumcised and uncircumcised. Well, we know that erectile dysfunction, again, is not a simple matter. There are things that contribute to it. There are psychological factors that contribute to it. There are all sorts of, what I'm getting at is there's all sorts of confounding variables that are almost impossible to control for in a study like that. Now, there is a growing body of evidence that circumcision may indeed be linked to forms of sexual dysfunction later in life. The best study that I'm aware of to date actually just came out this April from Denmark. There was a large population-based study that looked at 6,000 people, and they did find that circumcised men had higher levels of um, not being able to reach orgasm. There There were higher levels of that among circumcised men, and also painful sex with their partners, um, there were high, higher levels in the circumcised population than in the intact population. And uh, from what I can tell, from what I read the study, the, they were pretty rigorous in their methodology. But that's one study, and it's tricky. Again, it's, it's a, a lot of the studies on the, the sexual effects of circumcision are plagued by methodological flaws, plagued by... Um, you know, just not controlling for, for, for obvious variables that you'd want them to control for. And this extends even to something as simple as, well, can we say that, um, you know, intact penises um, are more sensitive than circumcised penises? You'd think that's a simple thing to demonstrate, but if you look at the history of the literature, 
the vast majority of studies done on that question make such obvious and glaring methodological flaws that you're kind of slapping your forehead like, did these people ever go to school? Like, what? Like, what? what? Right? Um, so one of the more reliable studies that have come out recently is a study by Sorrells et al. in 2007. They did fine touch thresholds and neurological uh, examination. And um, they've been criticized, but the criticisms of their study are kind of weak. And they actually, for the first time, didn't make some of the more obvious methodological flaws. And of course, they found that circumcision removes the most sensitive parts of the penis. Shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's familiar with the data that I presented in the film about the Meisner's corpuscles, right? We know that it's the most highly endowed uh, from a neurological perspective, from a, uh, an end receptor perspective. It's the most highly endowed part of the penis. So obviously, people are going to and, and of course, Meisner's corpuscles are specifically about fine touch. So if you test for fine touch, you're going to find that circumcision removes the most sensitive part of the penis. Um, but difficult, tricky. And I'd, I'd say one more thing about this, which is that it's not as convincing to everyone as it is to me for, for, for whatever reason. I, I'm very... I find the, the um, sexual harms of circumcision to be one of the most compelling parts of the case against the practice. To me, that is very compelling. It talks to a lifelong detriment. Um, you are damaging a person's nervous system. Um, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that's, uh, that, that to me is more important even than the, than the obvious pain that you're causing the individual, as important as that is. Um, but not everyone sees eye to eye with me on this. And not everyone is as compelled by, you know, the, the sort of effects on sexual experience argument. I just happen to think that that's really important. I have a more sure. Which is just hold the mic up. Okay. Oh, yeah. It would actually be a criticism, I guess. And that's, um, I guess I would have liked to hear, have heard from some women who had been with both circumcised and uncircumcised men um, so mm -hmm. that they can have a say too. Cause, or, or men who have been with both, I guess, too. Yeah, um, that's a fair criticism. I did have um, Alice Lowe. Yeah, the, the criticism was that I didn't talk to women who had been with both cir circumcised and uh, intact men and gotten their perspective on it. I did speak to Alice Lowe, um, and what's interesting with her and why I think her testimony is particularly compelling is because it wasn't just that she had sex with in, you know, intact and circumcised men, she had sex with the same man going from one state to the other. So I think that that was a very uh, compelling uh, testimony. Um, yeah, I, I probably could have had um, uh, some more of that perspective in there. I agree that's a legitimate criticism. It's a very low budget film. Uh, I was a student when I started it and I had very um, little resources to sort of get out there. Um, the fact that I got what I got, I think, is remarkable. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, it doesn't affect the ethical argument so much, which again is my central thing here. Um, because honestly, you know, whatever the effects are on women, and I think there's a compelling case to be made that, you know, circumcision actually does affect female heterosexual sexual experience as well. That's not so much my concern. Um, and so from an ethical perspective, in any event, I think it's interesting. And uh, I actually, on this very podcast, have, have uh, devoted some time 
to speaking to a woman who has had both and prefers one over the other. And we had a very good conversation about that. And I think it's, it's an interesting perspective. But I also do think it's a little tangential to the central ethical problems that I'm trying to raise. Um, another thing that could uh, be studied is um, the effects of um, genital health in women. I'm sorry? Uh, genital health in women um, who are with um, men who are circumcised versus men who are non Oh, you mean like vaginosis Vaginal, and yeah, exact, exactly. that sort of stuff, yeah. yeast infections or I whatever? Because I imagine that that could... Um, because because of the um, the friction, um, there can be micro tears, and uh, that may make a woman more likely to get an infection. Interesting. That's an interesting idea. Um, I don't know of any evidence or any studies that have looked at that specifically. And again, we run into this problem of you know where's the money for it. But um, but that that is an interesting question. Yeah. So I was just going to say there have been. Um, um, HPV studies done recently, so. Um. Um, I am kind of curious about your your film was very centric on um, the on Judaism and um, and the ethical and um, the the motivation for circumcision circumcision based on that, and you actually touched on the fact that a large portion of the U.S. population practices circumcision t without even really understanding what it is or why they're doing it. It's just something that's done. I'm interested. Are you, have you how much? Obviously, this is, this is important for for you know focusing from that from that perspective. But how much information did you collect, or are you interested, or planning on doing anything more about about the community that actually is not connected in any way to Judaism. For me, for example, I do not have a single person in my life who's Jewish anywhere. Um, but this is a very important thing that I feel very passionate about. And I, I feel the exact same way when I talk to people about it. They just don't even, it, they've never even thought about it before. So it almost feels like it'd be an easy battle to win <laughs> having that conversation. But I'm just kind of curious, how much did you run into my, that? Did you look at it? Do you know? Well, I mean, I think I've devoted a large part of the film to speaking to the larger issue of American circumcision. I dealt with some of the health claims. Um, there are a lot of Americans in the film who have nothing to do with the Jewish tradition. Um, and ultimately, I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm on a 30-city tour. Uh, most of the people coming to the screenings are not Jewish. And most of our conversations don't center around the Jewish issues because this is a, a, there's a larger issue at play in this country. Um, which is that everyone's doing it. Now, there is a natural connection between American and Jewish circumcision, um, which is why um, not only the fact that I'm both Jewish and an American and I feel comfortable speaking to my communities uh, as an American and as a Jew, but, but beyond that, there's a natural connection in the sense that if you look at the worldwide cutting practices of on male genitals, you have on the sort of the least extreme version of a, of a cutting practice that I can find is what, what's called a dorsal slit in the Philippines, where they just do a longitudinal cut along the, the length of the foreskin, all the way to subincision in Australia, where they literally split the penis in half along the urethra so that you have two halves of it. And these are sort of the extremities. Um, Muslim circumcision is less radical than um, Jewish and American circumcision. And my point is that on that spectrum, Jewish and American circumcision are the same. 
So the actual practice of Jewish circumcision and the actual practice of American circumcision from a physical perspective um, are the extent of the damage is the same and the reason is historical. It's because American medical circumcision was lifted from the Jewish tradition. They were looking at Jews and they were, I mean, this is a big part of the, it's a huge story, the history of how it got started in this country. But one of the things that happened was they were looking at the Jewish community and saying, oh, well, look at all the diseases that Jewish men don't get. It must be because they're circumcised. Of course, again, coming back to that problem of not properly controlling for obvious confounding variables, like monogamy, like, you know, endogamy, like the sorts of social practices that Jews engage in. Um, so there's that natural connection. And again, as a Jew and as an American, these are the communities that I feel comfortable speaking to. I'm not so comfortable talking to Muslims about this, and I'm not so comfortable talking to, you know, an African tribes person about this, because I'm not part of that culture, and that's not a kind of criticism that I'm comfortable engaging in. I'm very comfortable, and I, um, you know, I'll do this with, with rigor. I will criticize my own culture when I think it's doing something wrong, but... I leave it up to people from other cultures to address that in their own cultures. So being a little, just slightly more specific, I guess, um, one thing that I would like to know just from my own personal education on, uh, and my own conversations that I have with people about this subject, since you've been studying this, what have you heard as motivations for circumcision from non-Jewish communities? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but the, the most common reason given for circumcision in this country is so that Junior looks like Daddy. I mean, it's that, that's, the, I mean, the reason given, right? Again, we're talking about a cultural practice. So cultural practices, in my reading of them, tend to exist and sort of collect reasons as they go along, as opposed to there being an actual er motivation for it. But there's a, you know, there's a long history of it. Um, we touched on it a little bit in the film, that um, it was a sort of Victorian health fad. Um, it was... This was a time in the late 19th century. The Victorians were sort of dominant um, on the global scene, and they had very strange ideas about sexuality. Um, they were very suspicious of sexuality, and they wanted to control it. And they thought this was an effective way to prevent boys from masturbating. They also had some peculiar concepts of the body and the way the body worked. And so they, you, you, you read these reports of doctors saying, I cured paralysis with circumcision, I cured epilepsy with circumcision, I cured diabetes with circumcision. It all had to do with these bizarre, nervous theories that they had about the way the body worked. Um, and then, as Leonard Glick said in the film, every generation sort of came up with a new justification. Nowadays, it's just really, I mean, it's, it's a deeply embedded practice. Um, it's become so deeply embedded that I'd argue it affects the way we think aesthetically about the penis. I think most Americans would consider the intact penis to be ugly, um, which is ironic because um, circumcised penises from the scar to the end of the penis are all scar tissue. Um, and that has become normal and beautiful in our culture. So you're coming up against that. You're coming up against the fact that, I mean, there's so many men who are circumcised in this country. Um, who would want to admit or confront? It takes a special kind of person to be able to admit that there's something wrong with their penis. <laughs> I'm, I mean, it, it just does. Um, I'm, I shouldn't call myself special, maybe peculiar, <laughs> but it takes a peculiar, peculiar kind of person to be able to do that because that's a difficult thing to, to admit about yourself. You have to be at a certain level of awareness and maturity 
Um, and so the easiest path of least resistance, as it were, is to just not think about it, not talk about it, or dismiss any suggestion that there's something wrong with the circumcised penis. I wish I could have brought my neighbor in. He's a surgeon. He's 77, maybe. And he's intact. His three sons were circumcised. He said he was mad at the surgeon because basically he said, he wrecked my son's penis. He said he took too much. It was all he said, but you know, so it's wrecked. <laughs> One guy, I mean, I've been reading about this a lot, and some guy said a, a circumcised penis is a ruined penis. Well, it's it's a shocking statement, you know. Oh, um, most of the circumcised people I've known in my life wouldn't say I've got a ruined penis. You know, they don't even know. It's just totally natural. So, um, what was I going to say? Oh, I wish I would have brought my surgeon neighbor in. Because how would he feel? He did hundreds of them. He used the clamp. You know, I've read it takes 8 to 15 minutes of clamping and crushing. Yep, the Gomco clamp. And uh, so he did hundreds of them, and he never probably thought, what's wrong with this? You know, probably not. He said he thinks it was all about billing when he did it, that you could add a little bill, make a little money in the hospital and make a bill. You yeah. Know? But... Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the Jews because they need to draw blood. Mm -hmm. Like the woman, she doesn't seem to be really concerned with drawing ritual blood. No. Whereas my surgeon neighbor doesn't want to have any blood. He crushes that and I don't think there is any blood. Right. But she doesn't see, be concerned with, with the blood either. I mean, so in the, And she's, in, she's working from the reform perspective. That's important oh, well, to that's mention. That's not so important. We don't need sacred blood. And anymore. they also don't do the mitzitza ritual. There's no suction of blood. Um, she doesn't do that at all. She, you didn't see it at all, and she doesn't do it. And the reform and conservative, as far as I'm aware, reform and conservative Jews do not do the suction part of the ritual at all. Now, there are some Orthodox Jews who still do the direct oral to genital suction part, but most Orthodox Jews use a little sterile tube or a pipette. Um, so to, you know, prevent infection. And I mean, there have been some famous cases of babies who have died from herpes infections as a result of this practice, direct oral to genital suction. And, and I wanted to say something about that. It seems like if you're successful in saying, okay, just let the people do it for religious reasons, then the larger society is going to say, but gee, that's bizarre. I mean, when I first heard about this a few months ago, and, and someone said, the grandson of some old back-to-the-land people is having a bris. Well, that kid was born in a cabin in 1975 or something, you know, back to Mother Earth and stuff. And, and here they're having a ritual bris. It was shocking to me. I mean, I didn't really think, geez, I, you know, me and my son didn't have a ritual circumcision. It was like, it was done for medical reasons, wasn't it? You know, it's like to be clean or something, you know. And the, the idea of the ritual was shocking to me um, and, and led to me going to a lot, a lot of research about this and reading the history. Just the idea that it was a ritual. So if it returns to just Jews are doing this ritual, again, it's going to seem really bizarre. It's like, what if I'd say, come over to a party and we're going to cut the genitals off my newborn baby girl. Yeah. You'd be shocked. You'd call the cops. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there are a lot of bizarre Jewish things that happen in addition to circumcision. We're currently in a holiday called Sukkot, where Jews eat in uh, wooden huts covered with leaves and shake 
palm branches and lemons. They're not lemons. They're called etrogim, but they look like lemons and shaking them. So there are lots of Jewish practices that seem bizarre, but, but the, the issue here is that we're not talking about a bizarre ritual. We're talking about an ethically problematic ritual. And that brings me back to what you're talking about, this idea of having a religious exception. Um, we in this country don't let religious people get away with anything. Um, there's a famous Supreme Court case around uh, some Christian science parents who didn't want to afford their children blood transfusions when it was, it was deemed medically necessary. And the Supreme Court said, you're free to make martyrs of yourselves, but you can't make martyrs of your children. So we do have a, a concept of drawing a line uh, around religious practices. And I think a pretty logical line to draw is when it comes to another person's body. You know, we can, we can have arguments all day long about whether it's abusive to raise children with the concept of, you know, that hell is a real place or impose certain kinds of religious values on them as they're growing up as children. We can have very interesting arguments about that. And I think an interesting debate ought to be had ought to be had about those practices. But when it comes to physically harming another person, physically damaging their body, neurologically damaging their body, and putting them at risk, that's something I didn't touch, about, uh, uh, touch on in the film so much, is the risks involved. It's not um, an entirely safe procedure. Um, some 2%, this is a low estimate, there's 2% complication rate for this procedure, which and the complications vary from you know, excessive bleeding to sepsis to partial amputations to taking too much skin off, the degloving is a horrible term. Um, and, um, and some number of babies die every year from this. So I don't think there's an interest. I mean, I think obviously there's an interesting conversation to be had about this subject, but I don't think it's particularly controversial to suggest that um, cutting off a functional part of another person's body who doesn't have the ability to give consent and making permanent body modifications that are actually somewhat risky. Um, I don't think it should be controversial at all that that's not something that people, that parents should do to their children. Um, and so that, and that comes back to this religious ex exception business. Like I think as a society, we need to determine what is appropriate and what's not and draw lines accordingly. Um, and, uh, Ultimately, it does come down to whether or not this is a human right. And if it's a human right, then all humans, whatever religion they are, should be afforded protection of their body. Um, you had a question. My question actually follows that up. I was wondering, uh, within the Jewish community, I'm not talking about the typical hospital circumcisions, but um, in your research, have you found that there's any statistics kept about um, any... Um, injuries uh, at, uh, is it a brie? Is that what it's called? Brie or a uh, As far as, you know, like hemorrhaging, um, things like that. Is, are there any statistic, statistics kept that? No, you know, I'm not satisfied with the statistics that hospitals keep on this subject. I think that there are a great number of complications that go completely unreported, which is why the statistics are totally unreliable. You hear these bizarre figures like 0.5% complication rate, and you're like, really? I know for a fact that meatitis occurs in like between 8 and 32%, you know, inflammation of, of the urinary meatus as a result of this. Um, and I hear about stuff in the Jewish community all the time, botched circumcisions. People talk about it uh, sort of like it's a natural disaster. 
right? Like the, they, they sort of remove agency from it because it's something you have to do. So no one's really responsible if something goes wrong. Um, but no, I'm not satisfied with any of the statistics. I think um, hospitals, for obvious reasons, grossly underestimate the number of complications. And then there's an actual practical uh, thing, which is that most of the complications that occur due to circumcision will only show up the week after, after the mother and the baby have been released from the hospital. So they happen in the home setting where people, they'll, they'll go unreported. Or if, you know, the, the, the thing that you hear most from parents is that, oh, well, they, you know, they, they, when they say that they messed up the circumcision, what they mean is they didn't take off enough foreskin. And so then you'll hear about these stories of parents going back for, you know, they have to fix, fix the circumcision because too much foreskin was remained or they're not happy with the cosmetic result. Again, we come back to this sort of cosmetic surgery aspect of this practice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the complications are underreported, underemphasized. I didn't touch on them in the film because as far as I'm concerned, the central ethical issue, like I said before, are the sexual effects and the fact that a person has to live with this their whole life. It's not just about what's happening then. And so even if a circumcision is done without any comp further complications, uh, you still have a big problem. Um, but I think the, that complications need to be taken much more seriously and that there are, I estimate that there are hundreds of thousands of men walking around who are suffering from um, the effects of uh, sort of botched circumcisions, if you will. And um, you don't hear about it because we don't talk about our genitals in this society. One more question. Um, have you spoken to anybody or checked into uh, I believe it's called a Brie Shalom, which is the the event, but without the circumcision. Yeah. Could you um, talk about that a little bit, or what you know about that, or do you sure. think that is a movement that will um, become? We'll hear more about. Sure. The only the people that I've met that know about Brie Shalom are intactivists, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but. Uh, but it, it, I, I'm making a point here, which is that, yes, Brit Shalom exists. I'm sure that some people have attended. I've never had the pleasure of attending one. It's really not something that people are even aware of, and it's definitely not something that's catching on in any significant numbers. Um, I think it's what's needed. I think that, um, but I, let me put it this way. We're not there. We're not there as Jews. The Jewish community is not ready to start talking about alternatives. I'm starting to try to engage people in actually having a meaningful, uh, substantive conversation about this subject, and that's really challenging. So it's, I think it's really important to be aware of um, where you're at um, you know, if you have non-normative views and you're, you're interested in having a positive effect on society, it's really important to have accurate gauges about where you're at. Where we're at right now, um, and I think this is true both of Americans and Jews, is that um, it's finally starting to come to consciousness, to social awareness. Um, and so I see my function as using this film to engage people in a substantive discussion that they might not have about a subject they might not have ever given a second thought to. Ten years down the road, maybe we can start talking about if you know if there if the trends continue and if um, 
you know, people are successful in, uh, in engaging in substantive discussions, then we can start talking about, well, we really need to, enough people see the harm in this that, and enough people are not wanting to do this that we need um, to come up with an alternative and breach shalom will, will play a role then. But we're really nowhere near there right now. I mean, you know, I'm seen as very bizarre and peculiar. And I just wanted to say that um, I, I told a friend of mine who is Jewish that I was coming to see this, and um, I wanted to have a little conversation with him about his opinions on it. And um, basically the conversation ended uh, with him saying, uh, we're Jews, it's what we've been doing for thousands of years, it's who we are, it's what we do. I didn't know how to like combat that, I didn't know what to how to respond. Well, it kind of sounded like he was shutting down. Yeah, way. yeah. I, I mean, that's not a particularly rational argument. Um, <laughs> and I probably, you know, I, I have a friend who says, uh, if it didn't get in through reason, it's not going to get out through reason. Um, but, um, you know, I'd be very sensitive. And I typically um, advise intactivists to allow Jews who are opposed to circumcision to do those conversations. But if the person's close enough and you feel that there's trust, um, I'd educate myself as much as I can about the Jewish side of it, maybe learn even a little more than he knows about it, um, and sort of start to engage on that level. Um, the notion that Jews do it because we're Jews, um, I strongly and vehemently disagree with. Um, I think Jews have done lots of things throughout history that they don't do anymore. Um, and there have been changes throughout Jewish history about the practices that are important and the practices that are not important and the practices that people find morally offensive that are legislated out of practice by rabbis. So just saying that we, we, we've done it all these years, I mean, that does, it does speak to a certain kind of cultural power that the practice has. And of course, because it's making an alteration on the body and it's inflicting pain, it also has more power because of that. But, you know, I just, you know, we, we, we don't bring sacrifices anymore. We don't stone people to death for breaking the Sabbath. We don't um, kill rebellious sons. We don't pour hot lead down people's throats when they violate certain laws. I mean, there's lots and lots of stuff that we don't do. Um, yes, this is a central and important Jewish ritual. Um, no, the religious and ritual consequences of being intact are not severe. In fact, in today's day and age, there are no consequences. This is something a lot of people don't know. And I've been doing a lot of work on this, um, talking to rabbis, doing research, there is nothing that an intact Jewish male cannot participate in in the Jewish faith at all. There are people who will, you know, be um, use this for political reasons or try and exclude people or try and castigate people. But uh, from a Jewish law perspective, from a religious perspective, there's absolutely nothing an intact Jewish male cannot participate in. Uh, being so immersed in two cultures that don't question circumcision um, and just accept it as it is. I was wondering how you came to question it. Sure. Well, when I was uh, growing up, my family moved to Israel when I was 13 years old, so I lived in Israel. And um, I was starting to have issues with my Orthodox heritage. Um, 
most of them actually clustered around the issues of the roles of the role of women in the Jewish tradition. And um, so for high, my high school thesis, I wrote a thesis on Orthodox Judaism and feminism. And I started, I asked the question, I started by asking the question, is the Jewish tradition sexist? This was my, you know, 17 year old question. Um, and I really went, I did a lot of research and I was looking for proof texts both ways. And what I found was really interesting. I found that the Jewish tradition isn't anything. It's a lot of things. There were proof texts that you could make the argument and use as evidence that, Jew, that the Jewish tradition is sexist. And there were proof texts that the Jewish tradition is feminist. And I found both. And the realization that I had going through this process was that um, the question was bad. You can't ask the question, is the Jewish tradition sexist? The question is, are people sexist? Are people who are practicing the tradition sexist? Because there's enough, it's, it's a wealthy enough tradition that you can find support for just about any position on many, many issues. Um, so that realization sort of kicked me into a process of thinking critically about all sorts of practices while not thinking that I was actually doing anything against the Jewish tradition because I realized that like, there's this wide base to draw from, and people happen to be drawing from here, but why not draw from there? I mean, there's no, there's no actual reason not to. So thank you all so much. Oh, yeah, I, please. I just have one more comment about the, uh, just to add to him. Do you think more it's about um, more of the family gathering that has to do with the circumcision than it does the um, procedure? Because I know people fly in from all over the country when there's, you know, it's, it's the bris, and then it's the... What, I mean, there's, you know, there's only so many big parties there is. Bris, bar mitzvah, weddings. Right, sure. right. I mean, you know, y you can't really say, oh, well, you know, you still have the Sabbath because that's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not, you know, one time. Well, actually, the Sabbath in the Bible is spoken of as a covenant as well, uh, which is right. interesting. Um, but, um, but it's not celebrated as, 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 as one. Right, as, I see what you're saying, as an yeah. event, right. Yeah, right. I mean, we have other events. We have bar mitzvahs, we have bat mitzvahs now for girls, we have, you know, weddings, we have holidays, we have all sorts of things. Yes, of course, there's something very powerful, and I, I would never, I'm not trying to minimize the power of the ritual circumcision slash, you know, welcoming a new boy into the world ritual. It's, it's obviously powerful for many, many, many reasons. Um, but most American Jews don't do it that way. Most American Jews do it in the hospital. And um, I, they may think that by doing it in the hospital, they're doing something religious. But actually, what they're doing in a very ironic way is they're preventing the person from ever participating in the ritual. Uh, because if a boy is left intact, he can choose later on in life to have a circumcision. If a boy is circumcised in a hospital, that boy can never have a ritual circumcision. Um, so, you know, I think that there are a lot of sociological and cultural, uh, but not religious reasons that this practice has become so seen as so important. But the actual religious significance of it is a lot less um, profound than some people would lead you to believe. Did your father ever agree with you on that? On which point? Well, just the last point, that it really matters a lot. It matters to your father a lot. You know. Well, it matters to a lot of people a lot. I'm saying that from a religious perspective, it's overblown. The importance is overblown. You know, people talk about the, the sort of punishment that's spoken of in the Torah, and it has become an important part of the Jewish tradition, but I think that... Um, 
you know, in a similar way to the, the way that it's become an important practice uh, in American culture, right? It's, it's important to be an American, right? When we go overseas, right? South Koreans, who never had a tradition of circumcision, after America was there for military reasons during the Korean War, adopted this practice because it was part of the, the, the sort of dominant culture, and, and now they have higher rates than the United States have. They do it, interestingly, not at infancy, but at childhood, and they think that infant circumcision is bizarre because if the child doesn't feel the pain, then what's the point? Um, but, you know, it, it, these practices, um, genital cutting practices, are extremely powerful and um, capture the imagination in a way that... Um, that few other practices do. I was speaking to an anthropologist about this in Chicago, and he said to me, he doesn't agree with my perspective on this, but he said to me, you know what the three hardest surgeries for people to watch are? I was like, no, that's a really, I'm, now I'm curious, what? And he said, surgeries on the face, surgeries on the hands, surgeries on the genitals. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think the fact that this is a surgery on, on the genitals does have a kind of, larger-than-life quality to it um, and a lot of power. Um, but I do also think that people, uh, both Americans and Jews, exaggerate the costs of being intact as if there was some kind of cost to leaving the penis alone, um, both from a cultural perspective and from a religious perspective. And I try to counterbalance that and counteract that, be a voice of reason a little bit and say, you know, let's, let's step back and think about this for a second. What are the actual consequences of, you know, in this case, not even abolishing a Jewish tradition, just postponing it to the age of consent, which is all I care about. I don't care what people do with their bodies as adults. I just care that you don't impose this on someone else without their permission. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 